0: Very glad to see you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, uh, I ask you to open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We have been taking the springtime to go through this often neglected, um, often misunderstood, uh, and then because of that often unappreciated book of the Bible. um, If you've got your Bibles, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This morning, Solomon is going to dig his finger uh, firmly and directly under our skin and into our relationships. With one another. He is going to poke where we don't want to be poked, and he is going to unpack some things that we would rather not actually deal with about how we are called to relate to one another because of what God has done for us in Christ, but yet how we end up relating to one another because of what we want to get from one another. So Solomon is going to do some very firm poking about who we are and how we relate. But before we get there, put your bulletin or your thumb or whatever you have to right there in Ecclesiastes and flip over to the right, to the book of John, John chapter 17. But because before we begin to listen to Solomon poke the bear of our relationships with one another, I want us to hear what Jesus has to say about why this is important. I mean, even in the church, I think we can often miss the foundational purpose for why we're called to live together with one another. Why we're called to know one another, be known by one another, do what we call community here at Redemption Hill Church. I think so many of us oftentimes exchange the purpose that God has for this for a purpose altogether different than what he wants. So before Solomon gets after us, I want us to listen to Jesus and see what he has to say. John chapter 17, Jesus is going to his knees before God the Father the night before he lays his life down on the cross to rescue us from our sins and, and pay the penalty and absorb the wrath of God in our place for our disregard for God. And he's going to God in prayer. And he prays. And do you know who he prays for? Do you know who he prays for? He prays for us. He prays for us. Of all the astounding things that we can talk about in John chapter 17 as we look at the prayer of Jesus, one of the things that I was most captivated by this week, as this chapter in Ecclesiastes was probably one of the most personally and pastorally convicting things I have read in this entire series, as I looked at John chapter 17, I was overwhelmed again by the fact that when Jesus went to prayer to God the Father, he had you and I in mind as he prayed. And I want us to listen to what he had in mind as he prayed. John 17, we'll start in verse 11. I just want you to get a taste of what Jesus was talking about and why these things are important. He's praying to God the Father and he asks that God keep keep them in your name. Here's who he's talking about, those Which you have given me. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus goes to prayer before God the Father, and he prays for those who God has given him through his ministry, who have believed on what he has said, who have heard the good news of the grace of God that will come through him. And he prays to God first for those who have believed, and he prays that God would make them one, even as he is one with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. An unbelievable sense of unity and intimacy and relationship. But here's what, here's what got me, and here's what I don't want you to miss before we get to Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. So I'm not only asking for the ones that you've given me while I'm here, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is you and I. Now he's praying for those who are going to believe in Jesus through the preaching, the declaration of the gospel from those first believers onward. Why? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be as one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even As you've loved me. This is an unbelievably amazing prayer. Jesus has you and I in mind. And when he goes in prayer to the Father, this is what he asks Father, my prayer is that you would make them one, that you would make them one, that they would experience the relational connection that they would experience the intimacy, that they would experience the community that you and I and the Spirit have shared for all of eternity. You see, before anything that exists ever was, God existed. And here's what tends to happen in our minds. We tend to think of God as this singular being, which he is. And here's where your mind starts to short circuit. He is one God that exists in three persons. In his own nature and character, God is a relational God. He is one God in three persons and Jesus prays that you and I, those who will believe upon the good news of what he has done on our behalf would be made one. That we would live with the same kind of relational connection that he has lived with for all of eternity between him, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? There's two reasons why we have to understand this before we get into Solomon. One, so that we don't get terribly depressed. Maybe I should say three reasons why we do this. Uh, One, so we don't get terribly depressed. But two, because if we don't understand why this is so important to Jesus, we will define for ourselves why we think these relationships and community are so important and we'll miss the whole thing. Listen, did you hear what Jesus said in his prayer about why this was so important? Why the unity, the relational connection, the community between the followers of Christ was so important to him? It has been his strategy from the beginning. That the way that we live, the way that we love, the way that we serve one another would reflect his character, would reflect his glory to a watching world. Jesus' strategy from the beginning, God's strategy from the beginning was that we would live in relationship with one another, in connection with one another, in community, if you like that word, with one another in such a way That people would see the way that we love, the way that we serve, the way that we live. And they would make much of who God is because they would begin to understand that the only way that that is possible is because something has been done on the inside of us that makes that kind of living a reality. The strategy of God from the very beginning was that our lives together would reflect his glory. It's been central to God's purposes One of the things I think we wrestle with is that most of the time in our relationships, when we talk about relationships between one another, whether it's marriage or friendships or what we talk about as community in the church, rarely do we ever take God's purposes into consideration when we think about our relationships. Rarely do we ever think about one another. And the first thing that comes to mind about why we have the relationship that we have, the purpose for the relationship that we have with one another, is very rarely the purpose that God has for our relationships with one another. Most of the time, and Solomon is going to get very particular with this, our relationships are bent around our purposes for one another. What can happen positively to me? What benefit do I have being in a relationship with you? But Jesus prayed that this kind of intimacy, this kind of community would be developed by God and protected by God between us, that we would live in this so that his purposes may continue, that his glory would be seen to a watching world. You see, we were created by God in, in the image of God. And one of the things that's so astounding about that, and we talk about it here a lot because you've got to get this, is being created in the image of God. We were created to live in this kind of community, in this kind of relationship. Just as God lives in this kind of relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, being created in His image means that we were created for this kind of relationship. We were created for this kind of need, this kind of intimacy. We are wired to want the relationships that we so desperately want. We get so frustrated by the failings of our relationships because we desperately want them so bad, and that's not a bad thing to want. We were wired by God to desire these things, to live in these things. God made us a relational being. We were not made just to relate to God, but to one another. And so, in essence, not only is part of God's strategy, our community our life together. But when we fail to understand his purposes, we're also failing in, in some sense and denying the very humanity that God has created us in. We were created for these kind of relationships. And here's my struggle. Here's why this week, this passage, was so personally and pastorally tough for me. I worry about us and, and I worry for us. I and mean, this is what Jesus goes to his knees before the Father for. This was so central to his understanding of of how God's glory would be made known, would be reflected to a lost, to a dark world. And I worry for us, I worry for myself, and I worry for the church at large, because I, I struggle to see these kinds of things take shape around here. I struggle to see these kinds of relationships take shape in my own life. I I struggle to see the kind of community, the kind of dependency take shape amongst God's people that Jesus went to prayer before the Father for. And so this was a tough one for me, but not only does he pray, and not only does he pray for these relationships because they're important to God and they're part of his plan for his glory to be reflected on this earth, but Jesus prays for a second reason and it gets at what bothers me so much and why I was so worried for us and why this passage in Ecclesiastes speak so loudly to our lives. Jesus has to pray because if we could create these kinds of relationships on our own, if we could come up with some type of communication strategy or, or, or relationship structure or, or some kind of technique that would produce the kind of community and relationship and dependency that Jesus is praying to the Father to build in his people and protect for generations, then he would not need to continue on in his work towards the cross. If we could achieve this kind of community and relationship apart from Jesus laying His life down on the cross in our place, then what need did He have to do it in the first place? Jesus prays for this. It's so central to His heart. The thing that He goes to the Father on our behalf for, not only because it's central to God's strategy and it's foundational to God's purposes, but because apart from Him we can't do it. We can't do it. I can't create something that can bring this thing about in your life. We'll talk about it later on this morning. The best that I can do, the best that we can do as a community, as a church, is create ways to point you in the right direction. If we could create this kind of dependency and relationship between one another, he would not need to do what he has done. One of the reasons that Jesus prays the way that he does is because relationships, uh, community, our life together, is probably the most central and the most clear place where our personal struggle with sin is most powerfully seen. Our relationships are hard. Our relationships are messy. Our relationships are frustrating. Our relationships are difficult because it's in those relationships that our sin is most clearly seen. We were created for them in Genesis 1. We were wired by God to desire these things. The only thing in the order of creation that God declared not good was what? Adam being alone. And that is no indictment upon Adam's relationship with God. That is an explanation of God's wiring, man being created in God's image that desires, that is made for a like relationship. And so God created Eve. We were wired for these things. They were created by God. They are good. They are good. But in Genesis 2, with the entrance of sin and our rejection of God for who He was for us in exchange for who we thought we could be for ourselves, sin separated us not only from God but from one another. And the intimacy that God wired us for and created us for and provided for us was, in, was instantly shattered. And man not only ran from God, but ran and hid from one another. In Genesis 3 gets even worse in Genesis 4. Not only do we blame each other and hide from each other, but all of a sudden you've got a brother killing a brother. And you see the relationships marred by sin through the rest of Scripture. Jesus prays. Jesus prays. Not only because this is foundational to the purposes of God, not only because relationships are foundational to God's strategy for His glory to be seen, but because apart from Him, we can't do it. Nothing that we create can accomplish what He's asking. No strategy that we can do can accomplish what Jesus is going to God the Father in prayer for. Only what He does that evening can begin to build the foundations for the community and the relationship that we so desperately want, that he prays that God would so powerfully protect, that would so clearly demonstrate his glory, his grace, his sufficiency to a world that is starving, starving, and living in illusions that we've been unpacking, that Solomon has been unpacking for weeks. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to let Solomon poke a bear a little bit. Is that all right? All right. Father, thank you for your wisdom in creating us in your image, not to live alone, not to be satisfied with ourselves, but to be wired to be satisfied in you and to be satisfied and dependent upon one another. Father, we ask by your Spirit that you take your word and you show us where our sin causes such divide in our relationships. Show us where. Our relationships can be restored as our dependency upon you is restored. Father, we ask that you do this, that your glory be made known. That the way that we live, the way that we serve, the way that we love one another would reflect the goodness of your grace that's been poured out on us. We ask this in the name of Jesus who made this a reality in our life today by giving himself up in our place. Amen. Amen. Flip back to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Solomon is going to observe very clearly and reflect very painfully upon the things that Jesus goes to prayer about that keep us from living the types of relationships and community that we so desperately want, that so desperately portray God's glory. Ecclesiastes 4, let's start in verse 4. We're going to look at about five things. We'll see. We'll try. Five things that Solomon clearly talks about that get in the way of the kind of community that Jesus prayed for and that we were created for. Chapter 4, verse 4, here we go. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So, what's the first thing that gets in the way of the types of relationships? The community. That it reflects the wisdom and the glory of God. How about jealousy, How about envy. I feel like I need to be doing a game show. Like, Was it Price is Right? Give me five things that get in the way of, of you know. Ding, ding. Envy would be the first one. Jealousy would be the first one. You're familiar with the term "keeping up with the Joneses," right? Anybody unfamiliar with that term? What Solomon is saying is that we're a people who are sinfully motivated to pursue so much of what we pursue out of a desire to keep up with whoever the Joneses may be in our life. That so much of what we do, the effort that we pour out of our lives, the energy that we spend with the life and the time and the breath that God gives us, not to serve others, not to the benefit of other people, not to the glory of God, but in an effort to keep up with someone else that has what we don't have, that we think we want or that we think we need. And what Solomon is saying is that you, you, in essence, work so hard, so many hours. and it takes so much time to get that car, to get those clothes, to get that house, to do that thing. Not in any way to serve other people through it, but so that other people would see you in it. That other people would see you in it and would want what you want. There's another side to this envy thing, though, too. Not only do we do so much of what we do so that other people would see who we are and want what we want. Envy also has this other strange cousin that that exists in the fact that we do what we do so that other people not only will want what we want, but because we want what, what they've got. We look at what somebody else has got and we want it and we spend the breath that God has given us in our time here on earth to get what they've got. To have what they have. And jealousy and envy is a cancer, cancer to community. You know why? Because it keeps us from being able to do the very thing with one another God created us to do and called us to do, and that's to have the capacity to rejoice with one another when one rejoices, to mourn with one another when one mourns, to have sorrow with one another when there's sorrow, to cry with one another. When each other cries, when we live in envy, when our heart is marked by a jealousy and envy between one another, we do not. We do not have the capacity to honestly rejoice with one another when something happens in another person's life, because we want what they've got. And when we live with a desire to have what someone else has, we do not have the capacity to rejoice with them when they get it, because we want what they've got. And what happens? What happens? We get frustrated. And we get disappointed. And so to be good Christian people that are supposed to act the right way, we put a mask on, we put a costume on, we put a face on, and we try to rejoice and we try to sing. I'm so happy that you got that job. I'm so happy that that worked out for you. When inside you're frustrated and disappointed and you're not being honest, you're not being real, and there's no real relationship or community developed between the two of you because you're playing a game. And when that person cries, you've got to manufacture tears because inside you're really happy that they lost their job. You're really happy that that relationship ended and that those people broke up. You're really happy that they weren't able to get that thing that they so desperately wanted. Because your heart is marked by an envy for their life. A jealousy for what they have that you don't have. Or you're doing what you're doing so that they will look at you and want what you want. You do that? I, mean, I think it's easy to say that sometimes we do what we do to get what other people have. But how many times, if you're going to be honest here. Seriously, just be honest. How many times do you do what you do so that other people will be jealous of you? I mean, seriously. I mean, I think about this, and I read this passage, and I have to laugh because it's so true of all of us on some level. I mean, maybe it's not why you work and what you buy and what you get, but seriously, why do you work out? I'm not going to joke. Why do you work out? Why do you pay the fees that you pay to go to the clubs that you go to for a month or two at certain times of the year but you pay them 12 months a year don't don't miss that I mean we do what we do not so that our bodies will be strong that we'll be healthy that we'll have longevity (laughs) that we can get down on the ground and wrestle with our kids and play with our kids and our muscles won't snap when we try to bend down and pick somebody up we do what we do so that a certain amount of time during the year people can see us and wish they were us don't lie and maybe you don't do it for that reason but maybe you look at someone else who has been going to the gym for 12 months of a year and looks a certain way and think well, you know life might be better if I just if I do that. He he he's got it going. She she's got everybody's attention. That's all I'm saying one of the things that is a cancer To the very community and the very relationships that God created us to exist in, that He wired us to live in, that He designed to reflect His glory to a world that is lost in these same illusions. The cancerous things that destroys that is our jealousy. It's our envy. Number two, another reason. Look at verse five. The fool folds his hands and he eats his own flesh. You know what another killer to community is? Laziness. Laziness is a killer to true community. You know why? This one gets me. Because relationships take effort. Relationships take effort. And if I'm honest with myself more times than not, I don't actually want to put the effort into it that it takes. And... and, 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 I'm sure we could sit up here on stools and talk about it, but that was probably what marked the first few years of our marriage right, between Aaron and I. The intimacy that God designs between a man and a wife in marriage takes effort. It takes work. And there weren't many things in my life, for whatever reason, the way that God created me that took a whole lot of effort. I wasn't a super smart student. I didn't really work that hard at it, but I did pretty well. I was wired by God to be really athletic and really good at sports. I did not work very hard. I did very well other guys that I played with had to work 10 times harder than I did to do what I did. And so I never actually worked very hard. Things came pretty easy to me. And because of that, that's the way I treated most of the relationships that I had in my life. I traveled around. I moved around partly for sports, partly for my family. But by the time I left college, I'd been to 18 schools. And 18 schools, you learn how to interact with people. You learn how to have relationships with people that only go to a certain place because you never quite know when you're actually leaving, but you learn what you're really good at and how to really connect and how to really talk and and how to just blend in with lots of different types of people. And so for about 18 to 20 years, maybe longer than that, maybe about 25 years, the majority of my relationships were marked by a laziness, a laziness on my part. Because I never really understood that real relationships, real intimacy, real interdependency takes work. It takes work. You see, lazy people in relationships become life-draining, life-sucking people in community. They exist with the expectation that other people will always take the initiative, that other people will always do what it takes to see their relationship prosper. They will always feed the other person, to use Solomon's metaphor here in verse 5. And what happens is eventually people just get tired of it. They just get tired of it. A lazy person doesn't do what it takes to develop the kind of relationship, the kind of intimacy that real community needs, and so they get frustrated wondering why the phone quits ringing. Because every time they were asked to do something or wanting to do something, they found a reason not to do it because they were just lazy and didn't want to put in the effort for it. And they get frustrated and wonder why the phone quits ringing, and people just quit feeding them. They just quit taking care of them in the relationship, and they're left to themselves to devour themselves, to feed themselves and eat their own flesh, Solomon said. Laziness, along with jealousy and envy, is a cancer. It's a cancer to the community that God created us to live in, that he prayed for us to reflect, that he died on the cross to restore. What else? Let's get another one. Have I got yours yet? You're kind of quiet. When your head goes down, I've come to your row somewhere along the line. And let me say this. I was thinking about this this morning. Um, I know that the the season is bringing this. Uh, When it comes to the the, the work required in, in relationships and in real community, let me say something real quick to the college students. Start this now. Start this now. Begin to deal with the work, the effort that it takes to build real relationships and real community with people. Everything you do right now is preparing you for something outside of college. Ray was talking about this while we were away this week, not about community, but it struck with me. Everything you you do right now prepares you for something outside of, of college. And one of the things that no one ever works with college students on is what it takes to actually have a healthy community with one another. College is built upon the most shallow sense of community that I've ever experienced in my life. It really is. It's the most shallow and artificial example of real community. And then you're thrust out into the world and to go and do what you were trained to go and do. And you have zero capacity to actually experience real relationships and real community because what you've been in the bubble of was so artificial. It was such an illusion. It was all based on likes, personal interests, what you could get from the other person. Give yourself, and here's what I pray. I, I, I can't make it, make it happen for you, nothing that we do can make it work for you. But while you're here, while you're around, take the steps that you've got to take to begin to learn what real community is like. Take the steps that are necessary. You're always going to be looking forward to what's next. You're always going to be looking forward to where you're going and what you've got to do. And as long as you're doing that, you'll miss the reality of where God has you and where he's placed you. You'll miss the community that God has, has put right there in your path. Um, we'll come back to that. So that was just my sidebar. Um, Issue number three, verse six. This is a fun one. If I haven't gotten to you yet, all so I'm gonna get you on this one. Better is a handful of quietness. Some of your Bibles will say contentment, than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. What's another thing that is a cancer to the community that God has developed? To the community that He's building? About dissatisfaction. About dissatisfaction. You know, a dissatisfied person. Someone who's not content. Someone who's not satisfied. You know what? They're never really present in life. They're never really present in the, in the realities of the here and now. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago with the seasons in life. A dissatisfied person is always looking forward. They're always looking to the next thing that will bring the right thing that will get them to where they want to be. They're always going and going and going and pushing and pushing, thinking that the next job, the next account, the next house, the next thing, Well, get them what it is they want. And here's the thing. As long as you're out there, not satisfied with right here, as long as you're always out there, you're never really present in the here and now. And here's what you miss. I'm just going to tell you, here's what you miss. You miss some of the most amazing, subtle evidences of God's grace in everyday life. You miss out on the beauty of what God is doing in the relationships that he's given you and in in the community and the surroundings that he's put you in. You're so far looking forward. You're so obsessed with what's next, with what has to happen, with what's coming, with what will fix it. You miss the here and now. I mean, I'm part of a, of a generation that grew up with parents who were able to go further and achieve more than any generation that had come before them. They hit this amazing slot in American history with the evidence of technology and the expansion of the economy, that they were able to go and do more than any generation before them. And here's what happens. They never got satisfied. And so for 70, 80, 90 hours on a whole, in my generation, their parents were out, out working, out doing, out building, all in all in their mind with the, with the intention to provide, with the intention to build, with the intention to give something back to their family, I really do believe. But because they were so dissatisfied, because they were so bent on what the next thing would be that would give the love, that would show the care, that would provide what they thought was needed, they missed the everyday realities of life with their family and kids. Instead of contentment with one hand of what God has given you in this life, generations take two hands striving after what can never satisfy. And in the end, you miss the present reality of life. I have not done as much ministry with with college students and and young adults that I used to do. But the one thing that was certain when I did, and I I think Raymond could probably concur, is that we've got a generation of, of kids with nice cars and nice clothes and come from nice places and have a growing sense of entitlement and an absolutely empty sense of identity and love from a family current dads, would-be dads. Look, your family doesn't need, listen, they don't need $400 jeans. It's not going to tell your daughter that you love her. It's not going to tell her that you really care. Dissatisfaction is an unbelievably dangerous cancer to the community that God has called us to because we miss the everyday Moments of grace in the life that he's called us to live right now. We miss it. We miss the moments with our family. We miss the moments with our friends. One of my favorite songs, all time favorite song, is written by a guy named Joe Hayes and, and Jack Rhodes. It's called A Satisfied Mind. Have you ever heard it? It's recorded by everybody from Johnny Cash to Jeff Buckley to um, the Blind Men of Alabama. Listen to the lyrics. Just listen, this is, how many times, I have to read it because I'd sing it if I didn't and you don't want to hear me sing. (laughs) How many times have you heard someone say, if I had his money, I could do things my way. Little did I know that it's so hard to find one rich man in 10 with a satisfied mind. Once I was winning in fortune and fame, everything that I dreamed for to get in my life, I was getting in life's game. But then suddenly it happened, I lost every dime. But I'm richer by far, with a satisfied mind. A money can't buy back your youth when you're old, or a friend when you're lonely, or a love that's grown cold. And the wealthiest person is popular at times, compared to the man with a satisfied mind. But when my life is ended, and my time has run out, my trials and my loved ones, I'll leave them no doubt. One thing's for certain when it comes to my time, I'll leave this old world with a satisfied mind. Dissatisfaction destroys, destroys the relationships that God has called us to experience, the community that he's called us to experience that reflect his grace and his love because we miss it. We miss it. We're so focused on something else. He's not done. Maybe that one didn't get you. What's a fourth thing that Solomon says in chapter 4? Is it cancer to this kind of relationship and community? Look at verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure. This is also vanity and an unhappy business. Blind ambition. Blind ambition is an unbelievably dangerous thing in your life. Blind ambition is an unbelievably dangerous cancer to community. Now, let me say this with a caveat. Ambition is a wonderful thing. Ambition is a wonderful thing. Talking to a lot of you, let me just say this as your pastor, some of you need more of it. Seriously. Some of you need more of it. Some of you do not have enough ambition. Okay, that's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. The problem with this man that Solomon is talking about in this little story is that he had a blind ambition. He never actually stopped at any point in his life to look at himself and ask one very simple question. One very simple question. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing what I do? Why am I working so hard, toiling and laboring and spending all of myself and all of my time going after this? He never stopped to look around and say, in all of my work, and all of my effort, I don't have anyone. I don't have a son, I don't have a brother, I don't have a wife, I don't have a family. I've worked so hard to get so much to go so far, but I've never actually stopped to ask why? Why? Ambition run amok. Takes your life and directs your life and compels your life to serve no one but yourself. To serve no one but yourself. Blind ambition will wreck, will wreck the community that God gave himself up for, gave his son up for, declares, reflects his grace and his glory. I was reading this week in the Wall Street Journal and they had a a collection of, of studies they had kind of gathered all the research, and put it together. And here's what they said. Study after study came to this conclusion. 2010, people who are the happiest are not the people who buy the nicest things, but the people who buy less so they can take the rest of their money and go away with family and friends. People whose ambition is not solely driven to serve themselves. No religious study, no Bible study, no no bias on my end on this one. Studies have shown that people who take their ambition and the thing and the work that God has given them to go do, and they do it for someone other than themselves, take the Bible out, are found to be the happiest people in America. Blind ambition. Never stopping to ask, Why do I do what I do? Why am I pressing so hard? 50, 60, 70, 80 hours, never stopping to look around and say, I don't have anybody in my life that I'm doing this for. It doesn't benefit anybody else but me. Never stopping. Kills community. Kills relationships. And I'll say this as your pastor. For some of you, you you should really stop and think about this. You do have wife, you do have son, you do have kids. You should stop and ask why you do what you do. You do have a people. You do have a community that you're a part of, that you are called to love and to serve and receive love and receive service from, to be a part of, to be changed by, to help see change take place in. Why are you doing what you're doing? 70, 80, 90 hours during the week, missing out on what God's doing all around you. You need to stop and ask yourself that. Is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? He's not done. I know you probably wish he was. He's not done. Skip down to verse 13. This one kind of sits under them all. Here's kind of the junk drawer. Fifth thing that tears community apart? Pride. Here's verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Pride is under them all. Envy, laziness, dissatisfaction, blind ambition, a lack of humility. This king that Solomon is talking about had gotten to the place where he was no longer teachable. He no longer take encouragement, nonetheless correction from other people. His pride had gotten to such a place that it actually kept him from the kinds of relationships that God had designed him for. Our pride is probably the darkest and most dangerous cancer, the most dangerous enemy to the relationships and the community that God's called us to. You see, only until we can begin to see that our self-sufficiency and all that we bring to the table is not the power in these relationships, but it's our weakness, it's our humility, it's our willingness to know just how weak and sinful we are that actually brings power to the relationships that God has called us to live in until we get a sense that humility is the key. Our pride, our arrogance, our self-sufficiency, our sense of independence will ultimately come out in any number of ways, be it laziness, be it envy, be it jealousy, be it ambition, be it whatever it may be, and will ultimately eat away. Eat away at the relationships that we so desperately want, that we were so desperately created for. But weak people, humble people, weak people are the, are the ones who know they need someone else. Weak people are the ones who know they need the grace of God. Listen, there's no, there's no tip, there's no trick, um, there's no model, Uh, there is no practical answer that I can give you to create this. There's nothing that I can do that will make this happen in your life. And this is what gets so frustrating about all of this. Part of me just wants to say, just do this, obey here, get there, and then you'll see something change in your life and in your relationships with one another. Then this community that God is talking about, that Solomon is going to unpack in just a second, that we're going to, blow through here in a minute will become a reality in your life. But the fact is, that's not the case. There's nothing that I can do. There's no strategy that I can give you that will make this come alive in in your life. But we all want one so desperately, and I want to give you one so desperately. Because if I can give you the right thing to go and do, then you don't have to deal with yourself. And this is what it ultimately comes down to. We all want some type of gimmick or or pill or strategy or technique or structure that will make this kind of thing a reality in our life because we don't want to deal with ourselves. We don't want to deal with the sin, the wickedness in our own hearts that eats away at the relationships that we have with one another. We don't want to deal with our laziness and our selfishness. We don't want to deal with our jealousy and our envy. We don't want to deal with our blind ambition that runs away from people and runs over people and keeps us away from other people. We don't want to deal with the dissatisfaction in our hearts. We don't want to deal with those kind of things. We just want somebody to say, do this and it'll all work. That's not the case. I I can't do it. And if you listen to Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4, he unpacks some of the junk that's resident in your heart, that's alive in your soul, that's real to you and you get frustrated Feel hopeless. You feel like if that's the case, then I can never really have deep, lasting, meaningful relationships because that's just all so electric in my soul. I am a jealous person. I am an arrogant person. Listen, if you feel hopeless or you feel frustrated, the only, listen, the only for these kinds of relationships to be restored, for community to be established, for community to be healthy. The only hope is the shattered and broken relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit on that cross. The only hope is not anything that we can create. It's not anything I can tell you to do. The only hope that you have to experience the community and the relational intimacy and dependency that God has created us for and calls us to is the fact that he experienced the devastation of being separated in himself, in your place. The only hope that you have to living out what Solomon is going to talk about and it being anything but your best effort to be nice to people is what God has already done for you on the cross. That is the only hope, which is why we can never settle for a structure or a book or a tip or a technique or a strategy to get husbands and wives to talk to each other better, to get friends to just love each other more, to get people to just make food for each other. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The only hope that you have is that God suffered these devastating consequences of our sin in our place and experienced the shattering of the eternal relationship that existed between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The beauty of the gospel is that it provides the foundations for the very things that we were created for, but that sin destroyed in our lives. Jesus was willing to be separated and forsaken and shunned by the Father who He has loved and who has loved Him so perfectly and eternally for all time. So that you and I, you and I, in our sin, And our trust and hope and faith in him for what he has done could be reconciled back to God. But most importantly, we would have the capacity to experience imperfectly in this life the relationships that he created us for with one another. He suffered separation from his father so that we could live in relationship with one another. Jesus, Jesus suffered in our place. So that we could be reconciled. And our relationships with one another, our community rises up out of this foundation. Without that, it is never true, it is never real, it is always shallow or artificial. Because we can never achieve the kind of community that Solomon is about to talk about apart from what God has done in Christ. You can't do it. You just can't do it. Listen to what Solomon says. Look at verse 9. We skipped over this. Here is what happens. Here is what happens when the gospel becomes the foundation for our life together. We experience what he says. Verse 9, we find out maybe for the first time that two are better than one. You've all probably got something at home that says all this stuff. So two are better than one. Why? Because they have a good reward for their toil. They get a better reward for their work. You know this in life. Do I need to unpack this for you? Have you ever moved? Have you ever moved? Make it as simple as possible. If you've ever had to move from one place to another, and I never lived anywhere more than four years until I came to Richmond. I moved all the time. And in the cities that I lived in, I moved around there too. If you've ever moved, you know what he's talking about. Two people together, Sharing the work, sharing the load, sharing the effort multiplies, multiplies the result. Look at this, verse 10. Why are these relationships so important? How can we actually experience them? Because of what God's done. Here's one of the most beautiful things about community. Look at verse 10. For if you fall, if one of you falls, another one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. And has none another to lift him up. So here's the reality: you're going to fall. It's not if, it's when. Some of you already have, like that lady in the '80s, "I've fallen and I can't get up." Commercial. You're in here and you have fallen and you can't get up, and your little thing doesn't work. You don't feel like anybody in here hears you. And some of these things that Solomon has been talking about have devastated and eaten away at your capacity to know and be known by someone else. And you feel like you're just there flailing around. You're going to fall the beauty of the relationship that God has enabled us to have with one another because of what he's done for us through Jesus is that when you fall, when you fall, someone else is there to help you up. When sin begins to grab a hold of your heart, when your life begins to betray the things that you confess, God bless a brother or a sister who can tell you the truth. God bless the person who has a brother or a sister in this place who can come to him and say, you're jacking this whole thing up. You really are. You're going to absolutely destroy your family. This is so contrary to what you actually believe, and I know that you believe in your heart. Something has got a hold of you. We need to deal with this. God bless the man or woman who has that kind of relationship in their life. That is what God is after for us. That is what Solomon is extolling in this. There will be a time that you will fall there's going to be a time that you're going to need someone else's help. But if your life and your heart and your soul are marked by all of these things from envy to selfishness to dissatisfaction to blind ambition to laziness, you're going to fall. And no one's going to be there to help you up. Verse 11, but again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? That's probably read at a lot of weddings. Um, but the context is it is not marriage. It's actually travelers in the first century who would travel across the desert in the middle of the night, no matter where they were, it actually got really cold. If you've ever been to the desert, the desert gets really cold at night. And so these guys would travel together and they would sit back to back or sleep back to back so they would keep each other warm in the night air. See, companionship was really a, a life essential, was a, was a survival essential. You wouldn't survive across that desert at night if you didn't have the companionship of someone else to help you keep warm. One of them the most amazing blessings of the community that God has established and he is establishing through Christ between us is companionship. We were wired for it. We were wired to help one another, to love one another, to serve one another. And when our hearts are betraying the very thing we were created for, we fail to experience this. Think of verse 12. Last thing, one of the beauties of this kind of community Verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And the threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's safety in numbers. There's safety in numbers. Here's the thing about sin and about blind spots. You can't see them. You can't see them. You can't see where you're weak. You can't see your blind spots. But God bless the man or the woman who's living in the community and in the relationship that has other people in their life, who can help protect them from themselves, who can help protect them from the sins that so easily beset them, who can see where they're weak, who can see where they're needy, who have enough love for that person to actually say something about it, who actually love another person so much as to risk the comfort of actually speaking, speaking something true and something painful to another person. Did you know it's a test of how much you love somebody? Did you know that? The capacity with which you have to actually speak something true for another person that might cause you discomfort is a sign of how much you actually love somebody? God bless the man or woman who is living in the relationships in the community that God has established that frees them up to receive the protection, to receive the care, to receive the companionship, to receive the support, to experience the rewards of doing life together, of living life together. And so the question has to be, is this, is this true of you? Are you experiencing these kinds of relationships? Are you experiencing these kinds of community? Are you cultivating these kinds of relationships that are deep enough and strong enough to help you grow in the grace of God? Are you cultivating these relationships types of relationships they'll always be imperfect they'll always be messy they will always hurt they will always be disappointing to some degree but God's grace is big enough God's grace is powerful enough God's grace is deep enough to provide all that we need to provide all that we need to experience the type of community and interdependence that he has wired us for and so as wrap was wrap this up. Let me just get back to where I was in the beginning and why this was so convicting for me personally and pastorally. And I've talked about it a little bit along the way. How, how does this become a reality here? I mean, really, that's the thing that sometimes keeps me up. And Chris and Anne, Ray and I were gone for a couple of days this week. And this is one of the things we talked about the most, and they didn't know I was going to talk about it this weekend. And so I was curious as we had our conversations this week, and we had long conversations about this. Our life together is essential to God's purpose for reflecting his glory to a world that is starving under the illusion of independence. How do we see this kind of thing develop and cultivated in this place? And here's the painful answer. I can't do it. This is where it all comes out. I I can't do it. I can't make this kind of thing happen here. There's nothing that I can plan, nothing that I can write, nothing that I can do. No matter how much I say, I can't make this happen here. I can only lead you in the right direction. All I can do is create places where this kind of relationship, this kind of community can be free to flourish where you can be free to be known and to know others, where you can learn to love and you can learn to serve and you can learn to care for other people and be cared for by other people. But I can't make you do it. I, I, can't, I can't make you do it. There's no series of things that I can do or magic spells that I can cast. I uh, sometimes wish there were. I really do. And so ultimately, Solomon leaves us in this place, and this is where where I'm going to leave us this morning. He calls us, in a sense, to respond to this reality, that we were created by God and his image for this kind of deep, interdependent community, that our sinfulness shows up in so many arrogant and prideful ways and keeps us from the very thing we were created for, but that God in his mercy and in his grace came and suffered the alienation and devastation at the hands of very sinful and arrogant men, and he suffered the forsakenness and separation from God the Father and God the Spirit, who he had loved eternally in an unbelievably permanent and amazing relationship so that we could be reconciled to him and reconciled to one another. Now, how do we actually respond to that? How do we actually respond to that in light of our own struggles and sinfulness? And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. First thing, just be honest with yourself. I'm not going to tell you go join anything or do anything or show up somewhere and do this and read this. You've got to be honest with yourself. you check your own heart. How many of these things that he pointed out this morning, and that's just a handful, just five, but how many of these things are true of your heart and of your soul? Jealousy, envy, blind ambition, laziness, dissatisfaction, arrogance. How many of those things are true about you and your heart? And you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to take that and be honest with that before God. You're going to have to confess that to God where you've acted on your own in this way and you're going to have to repent. And part of that repentance is confessing that to God, but then it's, it's dealing with the presence of that in your life, confronting the presence of that in your life with who he is and what he has done and remember the sacrifice that he, made, that he made on the cross to make the kind of relationship that you want, but your sin is keeping you from, possible. And we do that this morning. In a few minutes, we take Communion. But you're going to have to deal with this in your own heart and in your own life. And then you're going to have to just take some type of step. You have to just take some type of step towards people. You're going to have to take some type of step towards others, towards these kinds of relationships. You know, some of you have been hanging around here for a while. You've been coming and and you would call it home, but... You're always wondering, how do I actually connect? How do I actually experience that? That sounds really great, but that's not what I experience in this place. You're going to have to actually take a step. You're going to actually have to do something. You're going to have to open yourself up and give yourself. All I can do is create the place for you to do it. And you can go to the table out here in the, in the, in the, in the hallway or in the foyer. We've got a list of, of communities that meet throughout the week that take what we talk about on Sunday and try to just apply it to our lives together. Help each other see where we're weak. Help each other see where we're not believing what God has done for us. Help us to take what we talk about and make it real in our lives so that we can grow. We have these communities, and you can get one of them. You can go, and you can try it. I mean, give it some time. Give it a few weeks. See if it clicks. See if it works. Go to another one. But you've got to take a step somewhere. We've got a whole list of cards on the table out here that are different places that people in this church go and serve this city. They go and give themselves and love people in this city. You can get one of those things and get the information and go with them. You can go with Kirk and serve the homeless throughout this part of the city. You can go with Courtney or Wendy. Well, you know, not not both of them anymore. And you can serve the refugees, people who have been relocated to this city with a bag. That's it. A bag, of family, and barely any English. And said, welcome to America. And stick them in an apartment complex over here in Azalea. You can go and serve them and love them. You can be the church for them. You can meet others. Take a step. You have to do something. Deal with it. Check your heart. Check your heart. Where are these things real for you? Confess that to God. Confess it. He's big enough. Trust me. You're not going to say anything to him he hasn't heard before. Confess. Deal with it. Repent. Remember his sacrifice, his forsakenness in your place so that you could be reconciled to him and to others. And then take a step forward. Just do something. Just do something. But here's what I can promise you. You do that, it won't be perfect this week. It won't be perfect next week. It will take a little while. It'll take a little while. And I can promise you, you're still probably going to be disappointed. People are still probably going to hurt you. They're probably gonna, still going to let you down. It's probably still going to disappoint you at times. I can promise you It's okay. It's okay. It'll happen. I don't know when you'll taste this. I don't know when it'll be real for you. I don't know when you'll experience it, but I promise you to keep going, you will. You will. Let me pray for us. God, I worry about us and myself uh, so much. So much. I know so many of us I think that this Sunday morning is the fullness of what you've called us to. That you've reconciled us to yourself and called us to gather together on Sunday morning and to sing and to listen to someone preach the Bible and then we walk out and we live our own independent and isolated lives when in reality it so betrays the depth of of what you have bought us. It so betrays the reality of what it is to be the church. Father, help us to see, help us to believe, help us to grasp a hold of the fact that the church is not a service on on Sunday, but the the church is more fully what happens when people who have given themselves over in faith to you give themselves over in love to one another. I think we've just got so much, so much confusion over that. I know I do. And I think that there's a lot of us who think that coming here and listening and Showing up and just being here for a couple of hours means we're we're the church. That's so short. It's so short of what you've called us to. It falls so short of all that you have purchased for us. Would help us to do this life together, help us to do relationships together. Some of us are, some of us have fallen down and we need some help up, help us to do life together. Some of us are in cold and winter seasons. Help us to keep one another warm and to comfort one another. Some of us are being threatened on all sides. Threatened on all sides right now. Help us to be there, be the church for one another, protecting one another. It's worth it. Help us to see, God, this is it. Help us to see, God, that it's worth it. It's worth the step. It's worth the disappointment. It's worth the struggle. Help us to see that it was worth it. It was worth it to you. It was worth it to you. You prayed, Jesus, that God would make this a reality and keep it as a reality in our lives. It was so worth it to you that you gave yourself up to make it possible. Help us to see that it's worth it. And Lord, we ask these things that that your glory would be made known. That people would see the community of the church, not on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week. And it would draw them to you. That there would be a difference about it. That all the envy and strife and struggle and disappointment would be dealt with differently. And people would see that difference and be drawn to you. Lord, we want to be the church. And Lord, we're still struggling imperfectly understanding what all that means. We want to be your church. That your name be made known. Amen.